Lord Jesus Christ, lead me. My name is Deacon James. I am a Christian in the Antiochian Orthodox Church. This is the fifth session of an eight-part series offered to assist seekers of Christianity in their relationship with God through His Holy Church. In the previous four sessions, we have read some sections of the Bible, as well as some sections of church writings from the first 900 years after Christ's ascension, to see how God has revealed Himself in the world and how people have responded. God's self-revelation has inspired the Christian tradition, a living reality between God and mankind through God's Holy Spirit. With the eternal presence of God, the church itself is an eternal reality, not limited to the present-day people on earth. This makes the church a collection of people of all times, past, present, and even future, which is in full communion with God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit a living heavenly reality on earth, a divine reality with mankind. In this session, we are going to read a few verses from St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and then read some sections from the writings of the apostles' disciples and successors. As the twelve apostles of Jesus inspired and grew churches throughout their missionary activity, the church began to spread and grow. These disciples of the Twelve Apostles are called the Apostolic Fathers. And the Apostolic Father time period includes people such as Polycarp, Ignatius, Clement, Barnabas, Thecla. Their writings show us how the Twelve Apostles of Jesus spread the Gospel of Jesus and grew the Church of Christ as inspired by the presence of God the Holy Spirit, a divine reality among humans, God and man united. Let us start this session with two readings from St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, where Paul describes the church's eternal reality and how that same church reveals itself in the living lives of people. St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to be the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth." In these verses, St. Paul describes the eternal character of the church and the eternal possibility for all mankind. God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, as said in verse 10. These occur through the, this union happens through the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which God had a will 
or God determined before the foundation of the world to unite mankind with God. This is the destiny that mankind become sons and daughters. Just as Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so now through adoption, all men and women have the opportunity to become sons and daughters according to the purpose of God's will. This is what God would want for all people, to create and bring us into a church that not is just a human organization on earth, but a divine organization in eternity. And how does this eternal church then, made, how does it come into being in the earth? But as verse 7 says, it happens through the redemption of the blood of God. It happens through the forgiveness of trespasses. It happens through the riches of God's grace, which God lavishes upon all of us. Here's the activity, the redemption of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the, the, the acceptance of God's grace. This is how the eternal church moves and lives and has its being in this world. Regarding this eternal church on earth, let's take a look at St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. St. Paul writes, verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The last verse, verse 13, St. Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. This was an indication that St. Paul was put into prison for his preaching and his missionary activity among the church. And so he was writing this epistle to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Uh, uh, the realities of, of the churchly activity, don't let his imprisonment uh, get them down. Don't let that depress them. Don't let that discourage them from their eternal life that they have with Jesus Christ. So if we work backwards, we can see in verse 11, the eternal purpose of God's plan is realized in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus our Lord, then, in verse 10, is experienced through the church, which also has the wisdom of God, which then, and this is an amazing point, is made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So the church's task of preaching and living in Christ, the church's reality in Christ, is even on earth, is meant to be a witness to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. This is another verse indicating or describing the unity between heaven and earth, the unity between God and man, the unity between perfection and sinfulness, the unity of the uncreated and the created. 
we finish, if we take a look then up at verse 7, the eternal church, its activity in time on earth is of the gospel, which includes ministers given by God's grace. For ministers or ministry is how God then distributes his power on earth, the power of the redemption, the power of forgiveness, the power of his grace uh, through the lives of people on earth. Now, thanks to St. Paul's description of the eternal church, let us read some sections from the writings of the early church, the Apostolic Fathers. The first document we're going to read some sections of is called the Vivaki, or translated, The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. This document was written somewhere in the early 100s, maybe even before 100 A.D., it's often been described as a collection of various statements from the Twelve Apostles and even their, this, their uh, fellow ministers of the various teachings that, that either are in conjunction with the New Testament or some things and practices that aren't necessarily laid out in the New Testament, but that the early church just agreed was all a part of that churchly life. The interesting thing about this document, the Didache, is that according to some of the textual copies that we have from those early centuries, this document appeared along with some of the New Testament documents, which means it was circulated and read as if it was a book of the Bible. So the Didache, chapter 1. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. The way of life, then, is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And do not do to another what you would want done to you. And of these sayings, the teaching is this. Bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you. For what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same? But love those who hate you and you shall not have an enemy. Abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. If someone strikes your right cheek, turn to him the other also, and you shall be perfect. If someone impresses you, go one mile, go with him too. If someone takes your cloak, give him also your coat. If someone takes from you what is yours, ask it not back, for indeed you are not able. Give to everyone who asks you, and ask it not back. For the Father wills that to all should be given of our own blessings. The document begins, there are two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Its understanding of life and death is not a moral code. These aren't just rules to follow. Uh, these aren't just uh, laws to be observed. When we sin, the sins themselves are as if they are little bits of death that are corrupting us, breaking us down and ruining us. So the understanding of life is that it actually keeps us alive. And the way and the, the description here of this life is the life of love, love of God, and then of course love is our neighbor. Interesting that I, I don't is you can hear the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. For example, do not do to another what you would not one want done to you. 
That really is almost right out of Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. And then the teachings, bless those who curse you, pray for enemies. Again, this is from the recording of Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. We're going to jump ahead in the Dedaki to chapter 5. And the way of death is this. First of all, that it is evil and accursed. Murders, adultery, lust, fornication, thefts, idolatries, magic arts, witchcrafts, rape, false witness, hypocrisy, double-heartedness, deceit, haughtiness, depravity, self-will, greediness, filthy talking, jealousy, overconfidence, loftiness, boastfulness. And the document goes on and on with the list. But it's describing all of these things which are the way of death. These are the things that kill us even now. So what the document is getting us to see is that even if we are alive, we breathe. Even if we are alive, we think. Even if we are alive, we feel. When we engage in these kinds of things, murders, adultery, lust, false witnesses, these things are all killing us. This is the path of death. It's not just a law that we broke. It's a corruption. Uh, it, it's a, like a parasite uh, just breaking us down and eating us away until if we engage in these deathly things more and more, we will finally destroy whatever life we have left. Something like a zombie's life. We're alive and we breathe, but we really have no life. I want to jump ahead to some other chapters in the Didaki, which describe the early church's practice of its life. And its life is in, in community is seen in these sacramental actions. So we get a little picture of the rituals that the churches was engaging to foment and grow and maintain its life in God, which was the love of God and love towards neighbor. Specifically, there was the practice of baptism, the practice of fast, the practice of prayer, and the practice of the Eucharist. So chapter 7 is about baptism. And concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water. And what the document means by living water was likely rivers, waters that were moving, not necessarily stagnant water. This appears to be a picture back to the Jordan River in which Christ was baptized, into which St. John the Baptist performed baptisms, as well as all of the, uh, the activity that occurred with the Jordan River in the Old Testament. The Jordan River was that, uh, that line of which the Israelites, by God's uh, leading out of Egypt, they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So the idea of living water was that you would cross it into a living place. The Dedaki continues, But if you have no living water, baptize into other water, and if you cannot do so in cold water, do so in warm. But if you have neither, pour out water three times upon the head into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast, and the baptized and whoever else can fast. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. The fasting period is similar to the Israelites who traveled through the wilderness for 40 days. God had saved them through water in the Red Sea. 
and that was leading them to the Jordan, that water which they were going to pass through into the promised land. The time of fasting was a time of discipline. It was a time to prepare yourself, of preparation, to get yourself ready to receive these glorious things of God. Because the life of God is not simply always a life. The life of God in this world is not always of feasting, of getting fat. But the life uh, in this world is one where we have to temper ourselves. We have to practice moderation against the way of death. The way of life then includes discipline against the way of death so that we do not fall, so that we do not stumble, and so that we are do not killed. Let us move to chapter 8 of the Didache, which discusses fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer were the two ways in which Christians would continue in the way of life and hold off the way of death. Because Christians recognize that they are all body, mind, and spirit, and that Jesus Christ has resurrected the dead. Therefore, the, the, the practice of fasting is to keep the body in mind with the heart and the, and, and the mind, so that all three work in conjunction or work in union to maintain the way of life. Chapter 8. But let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week. Rather, fast on the fourth day and the preparation day, which is Friday. What, the, what the, the document is indicating here, the hypocrites were those Christians who appeared like Christians but really weren't. Uh, likely this is a reference to some of the, uh, the Jews that had rejected Christianity and chose not to, to continue with the belief in Jesus. So they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, which would be Monday and Thursday. Christians then, following that similar pattern, just shifted the fast to two days, the fourth day and the day of preparation. The fourth day of the week is Wednesday, which would be the day that Jesus was betrayed during Holy Week. And Friday, of course, would be the day of crucifixion for Jesus. These are the two days. The so that we fast on those days in recognition of these observances of death, where God suffered death so that he could give us life. The Didache continues, Do not pray like the hypocrites, but rather as the Lord commanded in his gospel like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily or needful bread, and forgive us our debt as we also forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the power and the glory unto the ages. Pray this three times each day. So even in the early church, they're recognizing that the eternal character of the church is one in which it lives in this reality. What better way to maintain that eternal reality than to pray regularly throughout the day, keeping our hearts, our minds, and our bodies set on the real reality in which we are? It's eternal. The challenge with eating too much or feasting too much is that it can distract us from God and deceive us into the way of death. Prayer and fasting are these two methods, these two ways to keep us always focused on what real life is. Thus the challenge or thus the command of the Didache to 
pray three times each day, at least. Sometimes we pray more. So that rhythm of prayer became something similar to food, just as it's common for people to eat three times a day, morning, noon, and night. So for Christians, our spiritual eating is to pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Chapter 9. Now concerning the Eucharist, give thanks in this way. First concerning the cup. We thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David thy servant, which thou madest known to us through Jesus thy servant. To thee be the glory forever. Interesting, they reference the holy vine of David. The cup of the Eucharist, then, is a participation with the holy tradition of people of all times and in all places. It's a connection with the people of the past, which then means that we now, uh, for the people that come after us, will be the people of the past with whom the people of the future can commune. It links us with the holy vine of the people of the past with God being the vine dresser. That God, of course, is Jesus, his servant. And concerning the broken bread, the Didache instructs us to pray, We thank thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made us known to us through Jesus thy servant. To thee be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. But let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist, unless they have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also the Lord has said, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. Eucharist, of course, is the Greek word for thanksgiving, which means that the church's central ritual practice of this Eucharist, the eating of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, of the bread and the wine, uh, this is meant to be a thankful action. It's a thankful action that joins us with people all over the earth, scattered all over the earth, and then joins us even to uh, the places of heaven in the, where the kingdom has been manifested in the heavenly places. This Eucharist, then, is that action which shows the eternal church in reality on earth. How often should we practice this Eucharist? The Daki chapter 14 tells us, for at every Lord's day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one who is at odds with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord in every place and time offer to me a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations." The Didache speaks as us when we come together for the Eucharist, offering our sacrifice. That sacrifice is us. We offer, we offer our minds, our bodies, our hearts back to God so that he might purify them, cleanse them, redeem them, make them whole again, whole with him and whole with the people of all times and in all places. This is why we are instructed by the Didache to not be at odds with one another, but to practice forgiveness, be reconciled. Don't let divisions, which are the way of death, destroy the reality of the way of life that we have with God 
and with others of all times and in all places. To describe the eternal church further, let's turn to some writings from St. Ignatius of Antioch, who is known to be a direct disciple of St. John the Apostle. St. Ignatius was the bishop of the city of Antioch, who then was arrested for being a believer, for practicing Christianity. He was put on a boat to sail from Antioch to Rome, where he was set to undergo a trial and likely be executed in the Colosseum at the mouths of lions. While he was on the boat, Ignatius wrote seven letters and had them sent off to seven different places where uh, he had friends and certainly Christians, Christian friends, to uh, tell them of his impending death and what that really means for our faith as resurrected in Jesus Christ. So I want to read some, some from his epistle to the Ephesians, the same place in which St. Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians. And I want to see how St. Ignatius describes the eternal church as it occurs in his own life. St. Ignatius to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4. Hence, you should act in accord with the bishop's mind as you surely do. Your presbytery indeed, which deserves its name and is a credit to God, is as closely tied to the bishop as the strings to a harp. Wherefore, your accord and harmonious love is a hymn to Jesus Christ. Yes, one and all, you should form yourselves into a choir, so that in perfect harmony and taking your pitch from God, you may sing in unison and with one voice to the Father through Jesus Christ. Thus he will heed you, and by your good deeds he will recognize you are members of his Son. Therefore you need to abide in irreproachable unity if you really want to be God's members forever. It's a fascinating description from St. Ignatius who describes the church as a song meant to be, and its members meant to be a choir, and they sing in harmony the the deeds and loves of Jesus Christ. And when they sing this hymn together with the bishop and the presbyters, who are the, the witnesses and the successors of the twelve apostles, then they create this, this unity, which is a harmony harm, which is a harmony that reflects God's reality forever. This is that eternal church. Thus also, what St. Ignatius is doing is a subtle nod to the liturgical activity that when the Christians gather for their worship, they sing. Their entire worship is meant to be of song, which is meant to be an image of their lives as a hymn that is sung to God in, eternal, in eternity. Ignatius continues, chapter 1, verse 5, If in so short a time I could not get close to your bishop, I do not mean in a natural way, but in a spiritual way. How much more do I congratulate you on having such intimacy with him as the church enjoys with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ with the Father? That is how unity and harmony come to prevail everywhere. Make no mistake about it. If anyone is not inside the sanctuary, he lacks God's bread. And if the prayer of one or two has great avail, how much more that of the bishop and the total church? 
He who fails to join in your worship shows his arrogance by the very fact of becoming a schismatic. It is written, moreover, God resists the proud. Let us then heartily avoid resisting the bishop so that we may be subject to God. When Ignatius talks about the bishop, we are meant to think of the twelve apostles, those men who were specifically chosen by Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, Jesus sent out apostles. Apostles now send out bishops. Bishops then become the image of the apostles, who were the image of Jesus. This is the physical, tangible, practical way in which the eternal church manifests itself on earth. But that also means that the bishops, these Christian bishops, have an immense task. They are not to be proud. They are not to be schismatic. Their entire life, in fact, their way of life, is to be the actual witnesses of the apostles towards whomever they're preaching to. Their entire life is meant to be one of faith and truth, which means that their life is one of utter sacrifice. Uh, they really die to themselves and give themselves over to becoming something more than what they are. It's a difficult life. But, as St. Ignatius says, that is how unity and harmony come to prevail everywhere. Chapter 1, verse 13. Try to gather more frequently to celebrate God's Eucharist and to praise Him. For when you meet with frequency, Satan's powers are overthrown and his destructiveness is undone by the unanimity of your faith. There is nothing better than peace by which all strife in heaven and on earth is done away. Chapter 1, verses 20. If Jesus Christ allows me an answer to your prayers and at his will, I will explain to you more about plan in a second letter I intend to write. I have only touched on this plan in reference to the new man, Jesus Christ, and how it involves believing in him and loving him and entails his passion and resurrection. I will do this especially if the Lord shows me that you are all, every one of you, meeting together under the influence of the grace that we owe to the name in one faith and in union with Christ, who was descended from David according to the flesh and is the Son of Man and the Son of God. At these meetings you should heed the bishop and presbytery attentively and break one loaf, which is the medicine of immortality and the antidote which wards off death but yields continuous life in union with Jesus Christ. St. Ignatius describes the way of life as the union with Jesus Christ. And that way of life in union with Jesus Christ is practiced to the breaking of one loaf with the bishop and the presbyters, which then is a medicine of immortality and an antidote against the way of death. St. Ignatius always also describes Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man, in which we are to have one faith in union, specifically that happens through the constant retelling of the story of Christ's passion and resurrection. And the reason why we tell that story over and over again is to remind ourselves of the threat of the way of death and to always remain in the way of life. It's that weird paradox, that unusual inversion of the cross, that if we give up our lives to Christ, we will then gain 
gain eternal life. This is how the eternal church shows itself in the earthly church. The last sec section I want to read is from St. Ignatius to the Smyrnaeans. This is the city of Smyrna. This is the last piece that will help us understand how the eternal church has manifested itself in the early church and how you and I have an opportunity to be eternal in that same church with Ignatius, with Paul, with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Ignatius to the Smyrnaeans, chapter 8. Flee from schism as the source of mischief, for that's the way of death. You should all follow the bishop as Jesus Christ did the Father. Follow to the presbytery as you would the apostles, and respect the deacons as you would God's law. Nobody must do anything that has to do with the church without the bishop's approval. You should regard that Eucharist as valid, which is celebrated either by the bishop or by someone he authorizes. Where the bishop is present, there let the congregation gather, just as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Without the bishop's supervision, no baptisms or love feasts are permitted. On the other hand, whatever he approves pleases God as well. In that way, everything you do will be on the safe side and valid. There is the Catholic Church. This appears to be the first time in literature that that phrase is actually written down. And St. Ignatius attaches it to Jesus Christ. There is no church without Christ. And in this church that Jesus has organized and instituted and revealed to the world, there will be these bishops, these men that will be the successors of the apostles, who are given by Christ specifically to witness to truth, specifically to live a life of faith, specifically to lead those into the way of life. The Didache and St. Ignatius are but two examples that show us how the early church revealed its eternal character and how in their life, in the way that they governed themselves and the way of life, was then passed on to other people throughout the world. This then should inspire us to think of the church not necessarily as a human organization and moral codes, but as an eternal reality of actual life itself which means that there are so many opportunities to fall away from life in this world. There are so many opportunities to kill ourselves with things that would not build us up into the love of God and would not move us to show love for our neighbor. This early church is an excellent place to read some examples of the eternal church and find, hopefully, that Jesus Christ is our true bishop who leads us and guides us into the way of life. Lord Jesus Christ, lead me.